Good morning. Happy Sabbath. I want to welcome everyone here and online. Uh, my name is Russell Atkins. I'm filling in for Tim, who's somewhere else. We're studying lesson number four in our quarterly today, Conflict and Crisis. The name of the quarterly is Rebellion and Redemption. Let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for this yet another opportunity to come together, to study, to um, get a, uh, a better perspective on what the great controversy is, what it represents, and how it uh, affects each of us individually and corporately. I ask that your Holy Spirit be here today and guide our study. Please be with those of us who are not with us, but are with us in spirit, and bring them safely back in the weeks ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. Did anyone have any questions or concerns uh, in reading ahead for the lesson this week? Any thoughts or brilliant glimpses of the obvious? As I was studying, my my mind kept going back to the origin of the great controversy. What What is the origin? What is the foundation of the, quote, great controversy as we understand it? Pride. Pride. Trust. Trust. Trust in what? Jealousy about what? Where, where did the great controversy begin? This, this is this is a review. In heaven, specifically, where in heaven? Okay, what? Where was Lucifer located? Next to God. Next to God, he was a covering cherub. Inspired writing tells us that, that no created being had a greater understanding of the nature and character of God than did Lucifer. This is where it began, within, within sight and touching distance of, of God himself. So what was the controversy? He was jealous of God's crap. He wanted to be like God. He wanted to be above God. Which specific member of the Godhead? Jesus. The being we know is Jesus. He knew as Michael. The archangel. He he alleged equality with with Michael. I, I think he actually um, was jealous of the relationship of the father and the son more than anything to begin with. Well, he wasn't allowed in to make the decisions and stuff that were made with Christ God. He was jealous of that. Okay. So this is the foundation of the great controversy. It is not a military controversy, as the lesson would will suggest. It's not a controversy about might and power. It's a controversy over trustworthiness, character, etc., etc. That is the source of the controversy. So keep asking yourself that question. What is the origin of the great controversy? Keep... Keep the answer in mind as we continue today and as we continue for the rest of the quarter. This is from the teachers um, quarterly. The story of Israel during the time of the judges is remarkable for its clear cycle of one, apostasy, two, oppression, three, cry for help, and four, divine intervention. Judges were individuals chosen by God as instruments to deliver Israel from its predicament at the hands of foreign powers. Deliverance took the form of actual military conflict. The great controversy was manifested in literal military terms. It is the theme of the great controversy. 
And that provides a lens through which to view the brutal, violent encounters that make modern sensibilities uneasy in the act of imagining how a loving God could sanction the killing of individuals or of populations. Thoughts? Not by might, nor by power. This should be triggering some synapses in the brains and bringing text to, to, to mind. Uh, we just heard one from Wendell. Not by might, nor by power, but by the way my spirit works. Yes, sir. Those of us that are old enough to remember Vietnam, there's a lot of discussion about winning the hearts and minds before we could win the battle. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you had a struggle in heaven, the struggle was probably for the hearts and minds of the individuals. Of intelligent beings. Yeah. More than a military conflict, but deciding of which side people were going to be on. Right. Now, what's, what's, what might be another text that uh, would... Uh, refute or disagree with this statement made uh, here from the quarterly. Common one. We've heard it many times in here. First Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. Anybody? For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have the divine, divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought, make it obedient to Christ. The parable of the leaven. Parable of the leaven from Christ's own mouth. That's right. A little bit of leaven infects a lot of dough. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the great controversy. We demolish arguments in every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Okay? Satan has bent his master intellect at distorting <clears throat> intelligent beings' knowledge of God. And think of... Sorry, go ahead. He knows that by knowing God, we will be, be like him. That's right. We will be... knowledge, we become like him. Correct. We will be drawn to him. And consider, spend some time considering how, how subtle were his arguments that a third of the angels believed him. A third of the angels that could see God, that walked with God, that talked with God face to face, that lived with God, that loved God. These, these angels had no, they had no, um, no perspective on what dishonesty was. They, they didn't know what a lie was. I mean, I've talked about this before, and, and it still boggles my mind. You know, we Human beings, we kind of grow up almost with, a, with an innate uh, understanding of that there, there's honesty and there's dishonesty. You know, when the, the two-year-old with chocolate uh, all over his face and mom says, did you get in the cookie jar? No, not me. Why do you ask? Okay, it's 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 in our DNA. We just we run to dishonesty. Angels had no framework. Everything they had heard up until Satan started some of his allegations had been honesty. It had been truth. It had been a, a greater manifestation of truth. Think how difficult it was for them to discern the truth from the lie. Controversies manifest in literal military terms. It is this theme of the great controversy that provides a lens through which to view the brutal, violent encounters. How does the lens 
of the great controversy, rightly understood, help us understand the brutal encounters the children of Israel uh, uh, dealt with in the decades after Joshua's death. Any thoughts? What was the job given to the priesthood, the Levites, and the children of Israel? And we'll talk more about this when we get to Thursday's lesson and Samuel and specifically referencing uh, Eli's sons. What was the Levite's job? They were to explain God's word. Thank you. They were to reveal God to the children of Israel. What was the children of Israel's job? Was to internalize that from the Levites and reveal God to the surrounding nations. That was their job. That was their task. That that's within within the context of the great controversy because God's character had been maligned for millennia up until that point. And he finally chose a people, the time was right, to choose a people, to bring them out of slavery, and to institute a process for the revelation of his character. This is what God has been doing since Adam and Eve fell in the garden. He has been trying to restore his image into the hearts and minds of mankind. Ask yourself, why were these, quote, military conflicts necessary at the time of the judges? What was God's original intent when the children of Israel crossed over the Jordan? Hornets. Thank you. What did you say? Hornets. Hornets. Exodus twenty three twenty eight. I will send the hornet and the pestilence ahead of you to drive the people out of the land from which you go. And I will not do it. I'm paraphrasing here. I'm mean, kind of from memory. I will not do it um, in a day or a week, lest the, uh, the wild beasts uh, take over the land. Okay. God had God had no intention of the the Israelites engaging in warfare. He God well knew what warfare does to the human mind. It scars it. It traumatizes it. God God was going to fight for Israel, and in, in many cases, He still did. He sent hail, hail and flood, and earthquakes and and wind, tornadoes. Confusion. Confusion. The Midianites. Gideon. We'll get there in a minute. God wanted to lead them into the promised land. He did not want them to fight their way into the promised land. Look at Jericho. All they had to do was march around the city 13 times and yell and blow some trumpets. With this in, this in mind, this, this should give us some perspective on... But Okay, let's back up. My, my original question was, why were the military conflicts necessary? The children of Israel had a task. They, they still, they were still asked to rid the land of the Canaanites. They, they were to, they were to destroy the idols. And if they were, and if they did find themselves in military conflict, what was the command? Well, what did God ask them to do? May I say that it's been interesting to me to discover that God had different instructions for different places. He didn't just say, go wipe them all out, every single one, all the time. He had actually different instructions for different groups. One, when he was supposed to wipe out everything, and they weren't supposed to take anything, not a piece of fabric, not a, you know, an animal, nobody wipe it all out. The other ones, for example, he said that you can take the virgins and bring them to Israel, but kill everybody else. You know, in other instances, kill the people, take the animal. I mean, because there were different instructions for different locations, 
I would think there was a meaning behind that. For example, they had disgusting habits. They were warned, don't follow the habits that are disgusting from these other people, and then warned not to have sex with everything and its animal, you know. They were, uh, they must have had some terrible diseases going on in those communities. Why take the virgins? They hadn't had sex with anybody, you know. So there's got to have been, um, Contamination reasons too for uh, the types of be types of you know entities they were required to remove before they could move in. And just in support of Linda's view, read Leviticus 18 sometime. All the relationships that they were sexual relationships that the Canaanites were having, it's disgusting. Yeah, and think about the mindset of a people that actually needs these instructions in writing. Yeah. Don't engage in intercourse with a camel. Well, oh, really? Oh, okay. But the Israelites were, they had a mandate to rid the land of the Canaanites. Destroy their groves, destroy their idols, and did they? They did not. Yes, Wendell. You know, just before, you know, well, as the children of Israel were going into the Canaan, uh, they were led by Joshua. And I've, I've wondered why God chose Joshua, because he was a military person. I mean, you look at most of his interactions, and he saw things from military eyes. When he went up on the mountain with Moses, and he came down and they were having the orgy, he thought they were in battle. Sounds like warfare, yes. Yeah. When um, he met God shortly before they went over into Canaan, he, he perceived him as a soldier. You know, are you one of our soldiers or one of, you, one of the enemies? Right. Etc. And so his approach to life and to everything was war. And I've wondered if um, um, maybe he didn't perceive some of God's leading in what God wanted to do. It, he saw a, a, a war solution to everything he saw. You know, when you, when you read the, the translations of the Bible, the translations of the Bible are, ri- are written from the perspective of the person who's translating it. Correct. You know, and so often the messages that we get are perceived in the ways that we find comfortable and, and how our brain works and whatnot. And um, maybe that's what the nation needed. I, yeah, exactly. I think that's reasonable, what you're suggesting. I also think that that the tribes that um, that the Canaanites and the Midianites and the Amorites and Jebusites and Termites and all the otherites that were in Canaan were warlike people. They had they had uh, mindsets, tactical mindsets. They had they had um, experience in warfare, and uh, I, I, God wasn't naive to think that the Israelites would be able to completely avoid warfare. But I, I, I suspect that God used use, use a tactician to lead them in, even just from a defensive standpoint. Yes? There's a book, unfortunately I can't think of the title of it, but the thesis is that war is in the DNA just like dishonesty is in our DNA. And if you look at cultures around the world over history, most of the time, people are at war. Yes. Peace is actually unusual. Right. And we tend to think of it as normal because we've lived in a country that's been at peace for such a long time, and we have peace. Mm-hmm. But that's not the experience of most people throughout history. That's correct. And and 
Ask yourself why warfare is in the DNA. What is the point of warfare? Getting what's mine. That's right. It is taking Mm -hmm. or imposing your viewpoint on someone else. It's coercive. It's it's by force. It's how earthly kingdoms expand their kingdom. It's how they expand their wealth. Well, the Middle East hasn't changed today. They're the same way. They're fighting people. And don't you think that God saw all the way down through the eons of time and thought, Canaanite's cup of iniquity is full. They will never, their characters will never change. Their characters are fixed. Better to eliminate a million lives now than to have to eliminate a hundred million later. Yes, ma'am. We need to remember this is a spiritual battle. It's not a military thing. And when the end comes to to go into the presence of God, people can't and don't want to because of the darkness. They they don't want that light. So there's nothing God can do. They just separate themselves. That's, That's correct. You're, thank you. It is a, it is a, it is a, going back to my, my first argument, it is a battle, it is a warfare, it is a controversy over the character of God and his trustworthiness. It is fought in the hearts and minds of intelligent created beings. Beings with the capability to reason, to discern, and to use their judgment and willpower to freely choose the right from the wrong. That's where the battle is being fought. That's where the warfare is. It often manifests itself as a literal physical war because of, because individuals, groups, nations have so misinterpreted and misunderstood the nature of God. They think that God is a God of force. God is a God of coercive force. And he will spread democracy throughout the world no matter what. Or that he's a political God and he will legislate laws to be obeyed and use his, uh, his holy, uh, justice to enforce those laws to, uh, coerce thought and behavior. I'm glad we've grown out of that. Uh, Sunday's lesson, Deborah. Deborah is referred to as a prophetess. The Jewish Word for prophetess is pronounced Nebiyah. It's a feminine. Uh, it means a literal prophetess or inspired woman. It also means a poetess or it means a prophet's wife. Think for a minute. Why at that time in that culture, why would God choose a female for the task of deliver the deliverance of Napoli and Zebulun? Any thoughts? Maybe she was the only one receptive enough to be listening. Thank you. <laughs> She was the best they had. She was teachable. She was willing. She was willing. And look at the spineless guy that she chose. Barack. She was the best. No parallels there. What's that? There she wasn't the best they had. She was the best. Thank you. <laughs> well, it was like, wow, she's the best they had. Nothing else was any better. you know. And it's like, no, she was the best. Okay, what's the difference? Oh, yes, ma'am. This verse in the Bible that say that they know and understand me that I am the one that exercises uh, kindness, loving kindness, judgment, and um, help me out righteousness. For in these 
do I delight? And perhaps Deborah understood that. Okay, good. I spent a lot of time in Nelson. I, I, help me out, though. I, I'm still not. I'm still not clear on the difference between she was. She was the best that that this group had, and, and she was the best. Well, it almost sounds like there were weren't any men that were good enough to do it. So, there weren't. So they had. He had to resort to a woman instead of saying. Well, I'm glad I didn't say that. <laughs> well, okay. I'll I'll sleep fine tonight, but. <clears throat> Okay, well, I, I apologize for offending anyone, but... I don't think I'll come back. Okay. <laughs> I, I don't believe you. <laughs> okay, Con- consider Barack. He wouldn't go unless she held his hand. Okay, think about how spineless a man that is. Amen. Thank you. Okay, well, we're pointing the finger at both genders here. We're, we're not, I'm not, we're not being politically indifferent or correct here. All the genders are bad. That's right. We're all broken in need of in need of uh, healing. That, that's right. You're absolutely correct. Yes, sir. So a godly woman in the hands of a loving God is a power influence in life. Amen. Sure. No question. No question. We had some of that with uh, the lady who did most of the writing for our church, too, mm-hmm. I believe. Yeah. Think about why she was chosen. She was teaching and she was teachable and willing. And the men that had been asked before her refused. Yes, exactly. The lesson states, um, quote, the heroine of this, of this story is Heber's wife, uh, J.L., J.A.E.L., who was not afraid to identify with God's people and who played a crucial role in defeat of God's enemies. Judging her actions from our perspective today isn't easy. The last thing we should do, though, is to use her deeds to justify deception and violence in order to achieve our ends, no matter how right those ends must be. Do we really consider it heroic to have nailed some guy's head to the ground? I mean, is that is that our definition of heroism? That's not a rhetorical question. Before we, we say too many bad things about the general, Barack. <laughs> okay. You know, in... Judges 4, the story comes from, it says um, in verse 7, He will have his chariots and soldiers, but I will give you victory over him. You know, at that time, technology of war was developing where those who had, had chariots were a mobile army that could travel quickly and decimate the enemy. And they... They had, that was a technological leap. Mm-hmm. That's equivalent to the United States going against Nicaragua or something like that. Right. You know? I mean. Or Grenada, as actually happened. Yeah. Or one of you know, whatever countries that, you know, don't have as much and whatever. I mean, um, and so here was God's representative in Deborah. And, and this general said, unless God's with me, I'm not going to go. And I'm not certain that it was as much cowardice as... It, now, he, he could have said, God is going to be with us, now go with your blessing or something like that. And maybe his faith wasn't that good. But, you know, he was going against a superior force with thousands of troops, you know, against his 
band of farmers, mm-hmm. you know, and that, I think we had given some slack. That's a fair point. I have no issue with that. Any other thoughts about nailing some guy's temple to the ground, nailing some guy's head to the ground? Is it heroic? Not in my thinking. And and do we do we think that that uh, the woman jail? I'm sure I'm butchering her name. Um, do we think that she had any? Um, do you think God was proud of her, or that she she avoided any psychoemotional scarring from taking a human life? Or she probably slept better the next night, knowing he was dead. You think? I'm not so certain. You might be right. I don't know. I'm. The song that follows that is praising her, but you don't hear God saying, "Go and do likewise." Right. So I think it gives us a little bit of perspective into the the mindset of the people that were living at that time, exactly. the mindset of the writer of the book. It must and, not have been an uncommon thing, really. I mean, for her to even think of doing that. No, not at all. In fact, the, take, the taking of human life was so common. You know, this, we're, here, we're centuries after God has said, no, 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 no. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, bruise for a bruise, life for a life. Okay, and The mindset at, at that time was, Life for a tooth, life for a bruise, life for an eye. And this, this mindset of, of the ease of taking human life still existed and still does in some parts of the world. Yes, ma'am. One of the problems with reading the book of Judges is that the stories don't have the morals attached. So we're not often not told how to interpret them. For example, the very horrible story at the end of the book of Judges, there's no moral until you get to the book of Hosea. You know, so you, you have to search. I don't know. I don't have a concordance here. I don't know whether other inspired writers ever comment on this story. But the book of Judges doesn't tell us how we're to take it. Well, that, 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 was, that was kind of my point at the very beginning, is that we need to apply the lens of a correct understanding of the great controversy to all of Scripture, not just the book of Judges, not just stories about... Uh, prophetesses and and generals and military conflicts. We need we need to apply we need to apply that filter not only to scripture but to nature and our experiences as well. I think we're safer when we have a comment, for example, in the book of Hebrews on the story of Samson, which helps us to uh, to identify what is the meaning of that life, you know, and and of course the story at the end of the Judges where we actually do have scripture commentary and. I'm just speaking out of ignorance here because I don't know whether this story of Deborah is commented on later. Uh, you mean later in Scripture? Inspired writers. Maybe somebody can help me in that, but I think that would give us guidance. Uh, there's some there's some Ellen White comments on on Deborah uh, that I was emailed. Um, I can I can include them in the notes. I haven't yet, but I can. Um, Monday's lesson, Gideon. I'm going to read Judges 6, 7 through 10. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. 
I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said unto you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites whose land, in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. This is a loaded passage. Okay, God, God explains quite a bit in, this, in these three verses. He, uh, he reviews some history to start with. What is the, how does the, how do the Ten Commandments begin? We've been over this before. How do they, at their very start, what's the first passage in the beginning of the Ten Commandments? Before that. What'd you say? So I'm the Lord your God. I'm the God that brought you out of the land. I am the God that brought you up out of Egypt. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. God is, God is revealing, beginning to reveal to the children of Israel who he is and what he's about. I am the God, not that golden calf you're going to make, uh, that you're, you're making soon. Remember Aaron? Aaron made the calf and said, here, here's the God that brought you up out of Egypt. No, that, that's why God is, God is beginning the process of revealing to darkened minds something about his character. I am the, Lord, I am the God that brought you up out of Egypt. The unseen God. Yes, I am powerful. I am all powerful, but I am love. I find it interesting that Aaron, after doing the calf thing, that later on God made him the head priest. You know, and he and his children were the head priests. They were the only ones to touch the holy things. Even the Levites, they took care of the temple, but they weren't allowed to touch any of the holy uh, items. Only the priests and only. You know, Aaron and his sons. Because it was the best he had to work with. <laughs> that speaks more to God's character than does anything about right. Aaron's value. That's correct. The, and, and what it says is the Lord works with what he has. Yes, sir, in the back. I think if you read that account, you'll see clearly as soon as Moses said, who's on the Lord's side, it was Aaron and his sons who jumped right off and made it clear that they had repented. They had made a decided choice that they, they had done wrong. That was my impression I read out of it. It's not because of some arbitrary thing about God's part. I think Aaron was a flawed man like many of us. And he realized quickly he had made a mistake and he got himself back on the right track and God took him on. I think that's well said. Today. Well, that's what gives us hope. It's when you hear situations like that, then you realize what a loving God it truly is. Like, you know, look at David, all that he did, but yet he was a man after God's own heart because God knew that in his heart he truly loved him. Correct. And he knew he was teachable. So God reviews some history. He reminds them of what would happen if they abandoned him. I mean, he goes back and says, you know, I told you if, if A happens, then B and C will happen. And he explains why they're now in subjugation to the Midianites. Um, the lesson says, quote, despite Gideon's complaint, which was unwarranted, they were disobedient, and that's why they were oppressed. Why was why was Gideon's complaint? And we're talking about uh, you know if God is with us, then why have we been? Why are we now subject to the Midianites? Why is it unwarranted? Know what the angel of the Lord says to Gideon. It says the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. 
Gideon replies, but if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? Okay, the, the, the angel of the Lord didn't say, the Lord is with the Israelites. He said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And Gideon didn't hear that, or he, he automatically goes to the plural. Well, then why is the Lord, if the Lord's with us, then why are we, why are we in trouble? So, I, I'm not sure that his complaint is unwarranted. Um, and, uh, you know, were they, were they being oppressed because they were disobedient? Yes, sir. No, I was going to say the, uh, I think the part that you brought out here, you know, the angel appears to him. This guy is not a, he's not some, you know, he's, he's a coward. He's, he's down in a threshing floor. Uh, what do you call it? A wine press. Threshing wheat. That's not, that's where you're hiding. That's where you hide it. Absolutely. So he's hiding. Yes. And the angel Lord comes to him and says, Thou mighty man of valor. It's amazing. It is. And uh, it, I don't know what happened afterwards, whether because the word of God was so powerful to him that he actually went out and became a mighty man of valor, or whether he just, uh, you know, listened to it like one of those um, books that you read, How to Motivate People, and whether that... But anyway, he became a mighty man of valor right after. He went and did some very, very... Uh, you know, bold things. Yes. You know, so I think it's, it's quite insightful that God saw in him potential that he didn't see in himself. Well, I think he saw willingness. Mm-hmm. And, and you know what? I think a, a distrust of self, um, I, that's a quality that God can use. And now whether, I don't know that I would go so far as to call it cowardice. Uh, he was being practical because the Midianites, you know, scripture tells us that they, they took every bit of food and their parties, they raided villages and, and in Ellen White's writings about Gideon, it says that the villages were, were starving, food was scarce, he, he was doing something practical just to live. And imagine, imagine the leap of faith it took when the angel of the Lord said, sacrifice an animal and bake some, bake some food and put it on this rock and then the, the angel, the fire comes out of the rock and destroys it. This was, this could have fed several people. Yeah, that, that was, I think that was a significant leap of faith that Gideon took to offer, um, to offer some scarce resources to the angel of the Lord. In asking for the miracles, what does it indicate about Gideon's faith? There were three miracles performed that he asked. Strong or weak? <laughs> Miracles are most often given for the weak. That's right. Strong. Correct. Strong in faith. Don't, need Don't necessarily need them. Elijah at Mount Carmel in his prayer, you know, I asked this demonstration not for my sake, but for the sake of those watching. What do we think about Gideon's efforts after the defeat of the Midianites? Reprehensible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, somewhat less than somewhat less than godly. And yet he and these other people were included in the book, mm-hmm. chapter eleven of, of Hebrews, as, as heroes of faith. Yep. And yet they had terrible, significant character flaws yet to be um, purged. I was just reading Judge. I was just in studying just 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 this morning. I read a part of Judges I'd, I'd never seen before. You know how many sons he had. Gideon. Seventy. Seventy sons. So he had an army right there. <laughs> I don't know if this was at the time he attacked the Midianites or not. Um, 
I think it was it was later in you know after his judging of Israel. Yeah, seventy sons, and why? Because he had many wives, and yet there he is, all of faith. Same thing with uh, same thing with um, Solomon. You know, all pale in comparison to him. This is from uh, a couple of references. Well, one reference from Ellen White. Uh, EP. What 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 is that um, designation? EP. Anyway, Gideon was betrayed into another error, which brought disaster upon his house and upon all of Israel. This is referencing his um, making of the ephod. He took the jewel. He took the jewelry from uh, from some of the spoil, made an ephod out of it, and and basically designated himself as a priest to do sacrifices, um, uh, and not in accordance with what he, God had told him. The season of inactivity that succeeds a great struggle is often fraught with great danger. Then is the period of conflict. To this danger, Gideon was now exposed. The spirit of unrest was upon him. Instead of waiting for design guidance, he began to plan for himself. Because he had been commanded to offer sacrifice upon the rock where the angel appeared to him, Gideon concluded that he had been appointed as a priest. Without waiting for design sanction, he determined to institute a system of worship similar to that carried on at the tabernacle. With strong popular feeling in his favor, that's always a troublemaker, he found no difficulty in carrying out his plan. At his request, the earrings of gold taken from Midianites were given to him as his share of the spoil. People also collected other costly materials together with the richly adorned garments from the princes of Midian. From the material thus furnished, Gideon constructed an ephod and a breastplate in imitation of those worn by the high priest. And his course proved to be a snare to himself and to his family as well as to Israel. The unauthorized worship led many people to finally forsake the Lord and serve idols. After Gideon's death, great numbers among, among whom were of his own family joined in the apostasy. The people were led away from God by the very man who once overthrew their idolatry. One of the things I believe is significant about not only this story, but all of Scripture, is it is unflinching in its presentation of the failure of human beings when they are disconnected from the source of life and the source of knowledge. When they reject, even temporarily, the guidance of the Heavenly Father, self leads them down a destructive path. And though Hebrews can talk about Gideon as being the hallmark of faith, we have to we have to look at this a whole and say, you know what? He wasn't perfect, and neither am I. It should give us hope, significant hope. Samson, Tuesday's lesson. There are a lot of consistent, testable life lessons to be learned here. From the first paragraph, God indeed has special plans for Samson. Unfortunately, things didn't work out as well as they have. This statement could be said of everyone, from Adam down to present day. God has had plans for every human being that's walked this planet, and they haven't always worked out as he intended. Fourth 
From Judges 14, 1 through 4. Now Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman, a woman in Timnah, the daughters of the Philistines. So he went up and told his father and mother, saying, I have seen a woman in Timnah, the daughter of the Philistines. Now therefore, get her for me as a wife. And his father and mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your brethren or among all my people that you must go and get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she pleases me well. But his father did not, father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord, that he was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines. For at that time the Philistines had dominion over Israel. How do we understand the idea that it was from the Lord that Samson was, and he was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines that led Samson to choose a wife from among the Philistines? Was he really under the Lord's guidance? I never thought so. Not when he was doing those things. I mean, I kind No, I still don't think so. Is that a quote that you just read from something? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a book called the Bible. That's a quote from the Bible? <laughs> yes. Judges what? Judges 14, verse 4. But his father and mother did not know it was of the Lord that he was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines, for at that time the Philistines had dominion over Israel. Okay, so the Lord had foreknowledge that Samson was weak-willed when it came to the fairer sex, and he saw an occasion to intervene. He saw an occasion to overrule. If his parents weren't aware that it was of the Lord, then Samson probably wasn't aware that it was of the Lord either. I'm not sure Samson cared at that point. She plead get her, for she pleases me. Yeah, some of these statements troubled me as well. I mean, right after Rehoboam, you know, the people to be part from Rehoboam and the kingdom was split. Also, the prophet came and said, you know, this thing is from the Lord. And I think so often the Hebrew writers write these things in the context of God's sovereignty. So God has, in the end, ultimate control over these things. So I, I'm, I'm baffled by it myself. As a, I'm not a theologian by any means, but I kind of think of it as kind of an interesting twist of the, because God is sovereign over everything, either he permits it, he allows it, somehow they kind of assign it that it's from God. But it, we know for a fact that, that wasn't God's intent, you know, in terms of what he did. That, that's right. And, and that's why, and thank you, we, I, we, we definitely need to be discerning when we read texts like this. And we need to, we need to not be concrete in our thinking. We need to be able to think in the abstract, and we need to filter it through the, con- the uh, great controversy perspective, and we need to filter it through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus lens. So, and my question was, did really God did God really lead Samson to the Philistine woman, or did he know that Samson's weakness, weaknesses would lead him in that direction, and he would overrule circumstances by interfering in free will? And the story goes that he pro, he posed a riddle to the wedding feast, and his his fiance complained and whined and and coerced uh, and and bitterly uh, tormented him until he gave her the answer. So she gave her her family the answer, and he was out thirty ro- thirty garments. So how'd he get them? Killing thirty people. He went and killed thirty people and took their clothes. So here you go. Death satisfied. Do we think that pleased the, the heavenly courts? And then another example of how life meant nothing to those people back then. That's correct. That's correct. Not, not human life, not animal life. I mean, can you imagine tying 300 foxes' tails together and setting them on fire? 
Or just killing somebody with their clothes. Yes. It happens in Chicago every week. <laughs> and what do we think about those people? I, I, I praise heaven that I don't live there. That's what I think. This is uh, also from that EP reference. Physically, Samson was the strongest man upon the earth, but in self-control, integrity, and firmness, he was one of its weakest. He who is mastered by his passions is a weak man. That bears repeating. That should be on a bumper sticker. Real greatness is measured by the Real greatness is measured by the power of the feelings that a man controls, not by those that control him. Those who, in the way of duty, are brought into trial may be sure that God will preserve them. But if men willfully place themselves under the power of temptation, they will fall sooner or later. Satan attacks us at our weak points, working through the defects in character to gain control of the whole man. He knows that if these defects are cherished, he will succeed. We've discussed this before. Who gave Samson his strength? Who gave Solomon his wisdom and wealth? Okay, But God did not coerce behavior. He did not dictate how that strength and how that wisdom and how that wealth was used. He left people free to decide. And that's how God operates. Wednesday's lesson, Ruth. Can I ask a question with that? Uh, there are many, many people in this, in the Christian world, especially today, who believe in some sort of predestination that God already foreknew what these people would do. He did. All right. So, how do you square, you know, the the consequences of these? Choices that people are making with the character of God always being good. Well, in your in your preamble, um, you said predestination and foreknew. Those are two different terms. Um, they're not they're not synonymous. Predestination means that God intervened to make it happen. It means that he he used his power in some way to affect an outcome. Foreknowledge is very different. The knowledge of something happening and the active engaging in order to make something happen, I think, are apples and oranges. So I believe that God had foreknowledge. God had God has, you know, from the from the beginning, before the earth was created, He He knew that today we would be discussing this very subject. And He knew you know, how many hairs would be on our heads, and he knew how many red blood cells would be in our bodies, uh, and he knew he knew it all. He knows it all, but that didn't mean he intervened to make it happen. So when when you encounter those that would argue the predestination, you need to make sure that you guys are t- you're, you're talking on with the same glossary of terms. Predestination is not foreknowledge. Well, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before the cross. And Judas approaches him at night. And Jesus calls him friend. He says, friend, why do you betray me with a kiss? He knew the fore- he had the foreknowledge. He knew the event's coming. He knew he's going to the cross. He knew this man has betrayed him. He knew this man has been pl- planning to betray him all along. Yet he still considers him and calls him friend. Right. So, and he doesn't try to change the outcome of the events. Correct. But 
he's calling a betrayer friend because he was a friend to Judas. He, he, he's the living embodiment of love your enemies. Okay, he didn't consider Judas an enemy. No. No. Judas might have considered him an enemy, yes. No, I'll say it goes, I appreciate your explanation. I think it's right on the mark, but I'd say it goes beyond that. Uh, predestination, Probably. Predestination is actually, uh, you know, runs totally contrary to free will. The two are not. They're not. They're mutually incompatible. It runs contrary to free will. Uh, and that's a key point to get. That, right. You know, and you look at, look at when God, um, he made Abraham go to this deep sleep and he said, your descendants shall be in a foreign land for four generations, 400 years, and then they shall come out because the wickedness of the Amorites is not yet complete. He knew it. He knew that 400 years later, they're a meeting. But God is on trial. There's the entire universe looking on. He has to let this thing play out. And up to this day, he's letting it play out, even though he knows the end. Right. Well said. Yeah. And he provides evidence of his trustworthiness, and he provides evidence of the change of the human heart. You know, looking at Abraham, it, God knew that Abraham wouldn't sacrifice Isaac, or excuse me, God knew that Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac. God knew that, that Abraham would get to the point where he was ready to thrust a knife through his son's heart. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't testing Abraham. He was revealing something to intelligent creation and through Scripture to us as well. But why, since God knew what's, what, what uh, Samson would do, why did he give him the power of strength? And not give it to somebody more righteous. Like Deborah? Anybody more righteous. That was the best guy there. That, that's, now, now, okay, now why, why is that not sexist in what I said about Deborah? Sexist. I mean, she's right. She's absolutely right. Samson was, Samson was the best available. I look at King Saul. He was the best available. God picked him out himself. I don't find anybody better. Well, he also could be teaching some other lessons, too. You know, he can teach lessons about gifts that he gives to us, that we use, knowing that he, we're going to make mistakes. And he still gives us blessings. Yeah, but I know, but what, what I guess I maybe think too deep into it, that he picked somebody that would just go and kill somebody for their clothes, or just... Well, well, what, was the, what was the Philistine mindset? What, 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 was, the, what was the Philistine mindset, and, and what, what, what did they hold dear as far as their gods? What, what, what was the... What was the number one attribute of their gods? Our gods are powerful. Our gods are the most powerful. You also have to look at, okay, we're, we're talking about four stories or so that come out of the thing of Samson. You read the last text about Samson in the book of Judges. What did it say? He judged, he judged Israel for 20 years. 20 years, and we pick out four mistakes yep. and say, what a flawed individual. If we came up with our lives... With only four mistakes in 20 years. I'd be a big one. <laughs> he, he was a flawed individual. The reason the Lord gave him that power is because he knew he was sincere at this point. I think he knew he had learned. You can he just had, think about your own ge genealogy, your great-grandparents, and what we remember about them often is one mistake. You know, you, you think about someone who's mostly gone, but you kind of still know... You still remember that one thing that person did that they shouldn't have done. And you know what? And that's, that's a flaw in the human mind where we, we, 
well, often tend to fo- focus on the negative. And this one thing gets ripped Hang on just a second. Yes, sir, you had a comment? Well, just that, yeah, he made a lot of mistakes along the way, but God knew his character would develop over time, and in the end, he would, he would do what was necessary to free Israel from... It will up on the Philistines. Yeah. That's what he wanted. What was Boaz before he got married to Ruth? He was ruthless. Bad joke. (laughs) Thank you. Got the the eye roll from Lori. Well done. (laughs) Let's move move to Thursday's lesson with Sam. Yeah, I am. Go ahead. Anybody remembers about this? <laughs> yeah. Oh, great. Um, the lesson asks us to discern um, the subtlety of the, quote, attack of evil uh, in the following passage, where there were no armies massed on the borders, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, in the passages, Judges, um, oh, excuse me, First Samuel 2, 12 through 25, I will abbreviate it. This is... We're, just, we're describing the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. They were uh, corrupt. They, they did not know the Lord. This is what Scripture says. They, they took more than their allotted portion from the sacrificial animal that was brought to the, um, to, brought to the temple. They also had sex with the women that were waiting in the temple courtyard, which I did not remember until I read it yesterday. <laughs> Think about the misrepresentation of God's character that this gave to the children of Israel. And the scripture says, verse 17, Therefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. Men and women would come to give their offering at the temple. The men hated the offering because uh, the the two two sons were taking more than their portion. The women hated it because they were getting raped. Think about the representation of God's character this was giving to the children of Israel. And Samuel tolerated it. Eli. Eli, excuse me. Well, Samuel didn't do a whole lot better uh, with his sons either. The last verse, uh, verse 25 and this is talking about Hophni and Phinehas. Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. Okay, this this passage is a lot like the last one we read because God sought an occasion to move against the Philistines. Did Lord really desire to kill Hophni and Phinehas? Is this is this another one of those concrete texts that we have to we can't be discerning about? Or did the Lord know that their their measure of iniquity, their cup of iniquity was full, and he knew that they would be killed in battle after they took the ark to battle? Okay. The God I believe in didn't desire to kill Hophni and Phinehas. We need to be thoughtful and discerning about what we read. Well, he desired for Eli to correct his sons and to, you know, rule his household and say, you know, behave yourselves and... And then you have to think of the the whole sanctuary service again as a as a play as a drama to show you know what 
to give people insight into the way of salvation and to knowing their God. And these two were way off script. Correct. That's right. From Patri- uh Yes, Peggy. I see all these stories. There's so many horrible things happening that, oh, how much God loves us when he has the power to have changed all this. Yet he lets it go on and he lets the great controversy go ahead and play out because he loves us so much. We need to see the love instead of the badness that went on. That's right. He loves us. Yeah, and he's a God of truth, a God of love, and a God of freedom who will not coerce behavior or opinion. It, my kingdom is not of this world. This is, you know, when God was on earth, this is straight from his mouth. Finish up with a Patriarchs and Prophets quote, and we'll close. But although he, uh, parenthetically Eli, had been appointed to govern the people, he did not rule his own household. Eli was an indulgent father. Loving peace and ease, he did not exercise his authority to correct the evil habits and passions of his children. Rather than contend with them or punish them, he would submit to their will and give them their own way. Do we see any parallels today? Yes? No? Yes. I mean, I, I'm speaking from a position of ignorance here because I don't have children. I do not know the difficulties and struggles that parents deal with in contending with a willful child. However, I am a keen observer of human nature, and it doesn't seem to be getting any better. Parents don't seem to be more and more willing to to correct and to guide their children. Yes, Parents ma'am. aren't guiding their children. Uh, the media is, and social you know, social media and these kind of things. Okay. Parenting our children. And the whole country applauded where this this woman, uh, her son was out carousing with everybody. It was, it was Baltimore. Where she went out and kind of... Got, Dragged him by his hair and, yes. It was, you know, usually you say, oh, what a terrible parent out there abusing their child. And yet everybody was saying, we need more parents like this mm-hmm. who will get their children under control, take them back home, and, and keep them from doing this kind of thing. One, one last comment. We'll close. Yes, sir. No, I was going to say that, you know, it's not just because you don't have any children, not just about children alone. It's about relationships in general. Sometimes the most loving thing to do is to actually confront. And the most unloving thing is to indulge. That's right. Thank you. Bow our heads. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the examples that you've given us of flawed humans, seriously flawed humans, that uh, are still able to accomplish Great things uh, for the for your will and and great revelations of the con- of the controversy in heaven. We want to thank you for the capabilities that you've given us for healing, not only physical healing but mental and spiritual healing as well. And we ask a greater measure of your vengeance. Take out your vengeance on the sin in our lives and reproduce your character within us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you all for your contributions.